Welcome to the Arrogance of Infinity podcast. It's a collection of real-life tales about the transition from the industrial to technology age. This first episode was written as a brief introduction, but I couldn't resist expanding it into a relative history lesson. It's about slight degrees of separation and the strength, frailty, and fluidity of family. Here's part one, emigrations. My feet sank into the frosty grass as I stood overlooking the burial site of Jonas and Mary Aylshire at Mount Pleasant Cemetery in Hancock County, Illinois. The old Methodist church was gone, but the perpetual care remained, for now at least. It was Christmas Eve day and the morning sun was chasing frost to hide behind pillars of granite that marked the final resting places for one of many tribes who had worked their way across the rolling hills and winding creeks of North America's central plains. Tribes come and go from places like Hancock County by instinct, inspiration, and appropriation. Without Jonas and Mary, I never would have been there, or anywhere for that matter. As my feet sank and my heart reflected, I was thankful the ground beneath the frost wasn't frozen. I'd made the trek down from Minnesota to Mom's ancestral home to bury our beloved Francis, the dog they named a pope after. Francis obviously wasn't Methodist and would be interred a few miles away at my favorite place on earth, a hillside of wild prairie growth and clay just above Little Creek where we swam and picked berries in the spring times of youth, a stone's throw from where I proposed everlasting unity to my wife, and a hundred yards from the old stagecoach line that carried Abraham Lincoln on his presidential campaign. Jonas Aylshire, my great-great-great-grandfather, was a member of the Virginia State House and a lead engineer on what became the Robert E. Lee Highway a road that connects Washington, D.C. with points west. Mary was his wife. They migrated to Illinois in 1852. Jonah's father, John Conrad Aylshire of the Old Dominion, Virginia, was the kind of ancestor who reminds one how shallow gene pools can get. John crossed the Delaware to fight at Trenton, Princeton, and Yorktown with a friend and local land surveyor named George, who took on temp jobs as commanding general of the Continental Army, then president of the United States. George and John were among a group of prominent colonists who pledged their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor to the cause of individual liberty. The pledge had some significant asterisks, but was a major stepping stone toward the realization of self-evident truths. It remains a work in progress. John Aylshire outlived his friend by 48 years and was one of the oldest survivors of the American Revolution. The Philadelphia Courier eulogized him in a flamboyant newspaper article in in 1847. It was entitled, The Relic of 76. Quote, The thunder of British cannon was no terror to him. Noble was his resolve, and how noble verified. Near to the side of the father of his country, he stood before Yorktown with eyes swimming in tears of joy. He beheld the country's flag 
wave in triumph over the ramparts of the enemy. A gallant spirit, a pious and respected man, with brightest hopes of a happy immortality." Unquote. I stumbled across a copy of the article in some of Graham's family stuff and ran with the genealogical patriotism for a while. The World Wide Web had just opened up in the mid-1990s and turned family ties into a hobby shop version of the Human Genome Project. I dug into Mom's Aleshires and Dad's Pickets, then Labonte's, Payne's, Burton's, and Owen's. I had the family of Louisa Theodosia Wiley queued up when it dawned on me that for every generation I reached back, I could only take one of four forks in the road, and the available data was quickly consuming the two bytes of storage that came with my brand new computer and internet subscription to Prodigy. I copped out on my great-great-grandmothers and did what most people do, followed the surnames of the fathers. If one were to tell the immediate family's history from the narrow perspective of our mom and dad, then their dads and dads and dads, it would be a mirror of the Western European version of the consummate American experience. That is, as Granddad Aylshire used to say, if you leave out the pirates, drunks, and horse thieves. Back on the frosty grass of Mount Pleasant Cemetery, I wondered about Mary what she was like. I suppose she was, like many women of her day, nearly anonymous to noble eulogies, but the unmistakable weavers of life's fabric. The weaving is heroic, and perhaps the most crucial function of any culture, but like mortar in a brick building, lacks the sensation preferred in historic remembrance. The weaving heroines would get a cameo here and there within the tributes to their men, as was the case in The Relic of 76. As it turns out, without his sister, John Aylshire wouldn't have been weeping with Washington at Yorktown, or anywhere for that matter. Catherine, or Elizabeth, or Margaret, one of the three, saved John's life. In January of 1756, John was a baby in a cradle in a homestead, on the extreme boundaries of the colonies. Natives, whose ancestors had been hunting the property for multiple millennia, showed up to execute a quick claim of the deed, and anyone who stuck around to challenge its validity. The family hurried off to seek counsel at a local fort, and in the process, left young John behind. The unacceptable oversight led to the following passage in John's noble eulogy. Quote, One sister returned, determined to peril her life for his safety, and cautiously approaching the house, entered through the window, succeeded in getting her infant brother in her arms, and bore him in triumph back to the fort. Unquote. As I said, one of the three. I've met and been cultivated by too many of Mary's agrarian descendants to think of her as a subordinate. I witnessed too many selfless partnerships, too much sacrifice and forgiveness to issue judgments based on past media coverage. To me, the women and men are inseparable. I read the chronicles and feel the spirits. 
I feel historic, gentle, and intrepid power in my sisters, cousins, and aunts Barbara, Elizabeth, Dorothy, and adopted Auntie Beth. I felt it in all the women who nurtured, tutored, and intimidated me. Mom and her sister Eileen, great-grandma Corny, great-great-aunts Edith and Lorraine, grandmothers Eula Juanita and Beulah Cornelia, aunts Alice, Lena, Helen, Joyce, Flevy, and even in Diane, who left the family in a separation of faith. Old newspaper articles are fine for research, but enduring culture lives in storytelling families and the passions of those who seek to remain attached to preceding spirits. My privilege and the pain of my heart is that so many families have broken chains of oral history while I got to soak up a million stories that attached me to immigrants and pioneers, to the pious, reckless, and callous. One matriarch saved a kid from a fire and died in the process. One patriarch got hit by a train. And another, Jonah's son Douglas, rode a train car to the bottom of a gorge in the once famous Gasconade trestle collapse of 1855. Without Doug's incredible good fortune, I never would have heard or told a single tale. In 2012, I took Pop on a bucket list visit to his grandparents' farm in New London, Missouri, where he pointed out a ravine next to a country road where his grandparents hid runaway slaves of broken chains to await a carriage in the night that would take them to freedom. Not long before, those same ancestors had been owners of the people and their chains. The Ayleshire and Pickett family stories are remarkably parallel and became officially related by marriage in 1952, the centennial of Jonas and Mary's move west. Mom and Pop met in Georgetown, near D.C., about 90 miles from their great-grandparents' farms in Virginia, about the same distance that separated the two families' manifestly destined farms in the Midwest. It's as if our parents' marriage was a clause in the manifest to reunite the Shenandoah families. The pickets from Old Virginia also crossed the Delaware and froze at Valley Forge. They too were buddies with George and wept at Yorktown. Four score and seven years later, they all would live and die in a house they divided together against itself in a not-so-civil war. Mom's Aleshires went Union, Pop's pickets went Confederate, until that couple in Missouri succumbed to inalienable truths and laid underground rails with hopes of forgiveness. Just down the road from the Show Me State pickets was a family named Clemens, whose twain would spend a lifetime telling all of our stories about the triumphs and hypocrisies of the industrial age in America. Long before they had seen the Central Plains, the Aleshires were Germans named Eldscheidt from the Rhine Valley who set off in 1750 to help anglicize a seemingly open continent. The Pickets arrived in the New World a full century before. They were French Piquets 
who started their anglicizing in 1066. Storytelling has it that Grandpa Pequet, literally meaning long lance, was the armor bearer or wingman for the Duke of Normandy and eventual King of England, William the Conqueror, at the Battle of Hastings. After a few hundred years in service to kings and queens, the Anglicizers abandoned their great British land grabs for the much larger and greener pastures of North America. Unfortunately, the opportunism of fleeing oppression to become an oppressor is not unique to anyone's ancestors. As Granddad used to say, getting powerful has a way of bringing out the worst in people, makes them self-righteous. We always get humble, though, he'd say, either by God or an ass-whooping. Our Francis was naturally humble and had no timeline for interment. So I walked around the cemetery to read names and remember what stories I could before making my way back to Jonas and Mary. Despite local prominence, they saw the coming storm and left the Shenandoah Valley in search of peace. By 1859, as the Ayleshires were doing their part for Manifest Destiny, Charles Darwin was simultaneously working on the genealogy of every fork and every tree, of every creature ever on earth, without a prodigy subscription. He called it Origin of Species, and it sent humanity on a truth quest through a scientific and philosophical labyrinth. I pondered the quests of Ale Shires and Pickett's during a pilgrimage to Virginia when Mary Beth took me to Shenandoah for my 40th birthday. We hiked into a forgotten field of the Old Dominion to overlook the stones of John Conrad Aylshire and his wife, Susanna Pangle, in a cemetery that was just about out of perpetual care. I hauled a jug of moonshine and the soundtrack to Ken Burns' Civil War up a hill one starry night and sat beneath infinite galaxies to behold the valley and contemplate the origins. Without a billion variables, I never would have been there. We were an army on a perpetual march, an armada of ships endlessly sailing with brightest hopes of a happy immortality. There is, however, no fossil in a hidden cave, no secret in the ocean's depth, and no apex of artificial intelligence to reveal the missing link to our origins and eternal truths. The link isn't even missing. It lies within, patiently waiting for the arrogance to evolve and become one with the wisdom of all ages. <laughs>